I am deeply grateful for the privilege of ministering with y'all, and I am blessed to be among people who genuinely desire to seek to obey the Lord and to serve Him and to teach their children to do the same. Amen? And this morning, as we look at our study of 1 Corinthians, we're moving through this book a little chunk at a time. We're going to be looking at the issue of contentment with the life to which God has called you. And I think a lot of us struggle with contentment at various points. Uh, When I was still young and living with my parents, I loved them, but I couldn't wait to go to college. Uh, Then I loved school, but all of a sudden I couldn't wait to graduate and to find a girl and get married. And I love my bride, and we still have a great time. But as soon as we got married, we started immediately planning for seminary. And then once we got to seminary, we couldn't wait to get out of seminary and into ministry. And we loved that that first ministry that we were in. We served there for about six years, made a lot of rich friendships there, and had a, a tremendous impact by the Holy Spirit in the community there. Saw a lot of people come to Christ, saw people grow in their small groups. It was a great time. But eventually we got to the point where we got kind of, I like to think, holy discontent, uh, itchy feet, and wanted to move on to a place where I could preach God's Word every week as I get to do here. And God called us here, and we're excited to be here, and it's fun, and we love all of you. But we have had to learn in each of our circumstances along the way, be content with the life that God has called us to. And many of you may struggle with that as well. Maybe you're single and you long to meet somebody special and get married. Maybe you're married and things are not as happy in your home as you had hoped and dreamed of. Maybe you can't wait to get out of the house and live on your own. Maybe you want a promotion and more responsibility and more money. Maybe you have lots of money, but no time during which to spend it. There always seems to be endless opportunity, doesn't there, for discontentment. And to to long for a different set of circumstances than the ones in which God has currently placed you. My childhood pastor summarized it in a little poem that went like this. He said, as a rule, man's a fool. When it's hot, he wants it cool. When it's cool, he wants it hot. He always wants whatever's not. And that is true. Contentment can be a big issue for a lot of reasons. Uh, Number one, and I think this is most important, that discontentment, Uh, is something that can quickly lead itself to sin. And that is because what we are saying about God when we are discontent is, A, that He doesn't know what He is doing. God, if He knew what He was doing, would not have put me in these circumstances. That's what we think. Now, maybe not consciously, Maybe we don't state it that way out loud, but a lot of times that's one of the root issues of being discontent. 
is that we don't think God really knows what he's doing with our life. And in addition to that, we also think that he is withholding from us something we ought to have, which is good, that we want. Remember what the original lie in the garden was? You remember? Serpent slithers up to Eve, and he comes up to her and he says, So what about that fruit? And she says, Oh, we're not supposed to eat it. She adds a little, We're not supposed to touch it. And if we do touch it or eat it, then on that day we're going to die. And what's the serpent say? Oh, you won't die. God knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit, that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And she looks at the fruit. She sees that it's good for food. She sees that it's desirable for making one wise. And she takes some of it and eats it and gives some to her husband who is with her. And he eats some too. Now, what was the lie? The lie is God is holding out on you. He is withholding from you something good that you ought to have. And when we are discontent, we believe the same lie. That God is withholding from us something good that we ought to have. And if he were a good God, he would give it to us. And if he were a wise God, he would change our circumstances. Now, that's tough. That's tough. But we have to look at and analyze what we are really saying and what we really think when we are in the middle of our discontentment. Otherwise, what will happen is not only will our relationship with God suffer, but what we can fall into is to sing the if-only song until we are dead. Having never achieved any significant joy or lasting happiness or abundant life that Jesus promised. Because, see, the thing is, one of the things that amazes me as I read the Scriptures, one of my favorite scenes is in the book of Acts. You know, Rick has taken all of us through that. On at Sunday school now, and I'm looking forward to this scene. Remember, Paul and Silas are off sharing the gospel, and they do a great job of it. In fact, uh, they're, they're able to do miracles such that people of this particular community uh, believe that, that uh, they are gods, that they're Zeus and Hermes come down from heaven, and they, they tell people, no, 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 we represent Jesus, who is the true God. And... And then they go to another place, they go to Philippi, and they get beaten half to death. And then they get thrown into prison and placed in stocks. And while they are there, what do they start doing? They start singing hymns of praise to God. Can I submit to you that if you are unable to be content with your circumstances now, that you are unable to be the kind of person who sings praises to God in prison? And I don't know about you, but I want to be that kind of person. I want to be the kind of person 
who no matter my circumstances, no matter what happens to me, that I don't doubt that God is good, that He knows what He is doing with my life, and He is able to do with me whatever He wills because I trust Him and I know that He loves me and that I know He has put me in circumstances so that He might be glorified. I want to be a guy who sings praises in prison. And I would love to see the same thing happen to all of us. And so we want to look at this text and hear God speaking through His Word to His people. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17. We're just going to look at that first verse here initially. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Now this is the general principle that... Paul is going to illustrate and restate throughout this passage. God is sovereign. God calls all kinds of people with all kinds of gifts and puts them in all kinds of circumstances. And we're to live our lives, according to Paul here, faithfully before God in whatever circumstances he places us in. So he's been looking at that in, earlier in the chapter. He says, are you married? Be faithful to your spouse. I'm summarizing here. Are you single? Love the Lord your God with single-mindedness. If you're Jewish or Gentile or rich or poor or gifted or less gifted, use whatever God has given you in the situation in which He has placed you. Now, speaking personally, I'm a pastor. And I meet with pastors and I know a lot of pastors. And here's what I know about pastors that lots of guys that go into the ministry go in thinking they're going to be one of uh, what uh, our former pastor Jim calls five-talent guys. You know, according to the parable of the talents, the guys who got five. You know, the the Chuck Swindolls and the John MacArthur's and the uh, the, you know, the Mark Driscoll's and, and Matt Chandler's of the world. You know, these guys that have these ultra, mega, mega flex places and they make millions of dollars selling books and whatever, speak all over the world. You know, the five talent guys. And everybody gets goes to seminary thinking that they are going to be one of those guys. And yet, the vast majority of us wind up serving in churches of 75 people. Guess what you are if you're one of those? You're a two-talent guy. (laughs) Okay? And lots of guys who are in ministry spend their entire ministry discontent and going, God, how come I'm not pastoring a church of 12,000? How come I'm not, you know... In one of those mega, mega places, how come I'm not selling all kinds of books on every, you know, how come there aren't millions of people hanging on every word that drops from my honeyed tongue? Now that's ridiculous, and you ought to laugh. But here's the deal. Lots of people who are not pastors spend their life identically the same way. 
the circumstances about which you are envious may be different. Nevertheless, the reality of envy is still there. Maybe you wish you'd been born a man. Maybe you wish you'd been born a woman. Uh, Maybe you wish you had more money or a different family or a different car or a different neighborhood or different laws or whatever. Or born in a different country or in a different time or in a different house or in a different city or a different state, a different community, a different something. We can all find some way in which we think life has not been totally fair to us and God is not being good to me. But what really matters is this. What are you doing with what God gave to you? What are you doing with what God gave to you? Are you wishing your life away Wanting a different set of gifts, a different set of talents, a different set of circumstances, a different place in which to be and to use them? Or are you faithful to do what God has called you to in the place and in the circumstances that God has put you in? You know, there are some guys I know that spend their life wishing they had gotten married to a different woman. And you go, look, uh, but here's the deal. God gave you the wife you have, and your calling is to love and honor and serve and cherish and treat as Jesus would the woman that you are married to. And ladies... I have heard any number of women over the years tell me, I wish my husband was more this way or more that way or more if he was only a a more spiritual leader. Define that. I have no idea what that means. But nevertheless, I wish he was more of a spiritual leader. I wish he would do this. I wish he would do that. I wish he was skinnier. I wish he was bigger. I wish he was taller. I wish he had more hair. Whatever, okay? And, And you can... Again, wish your life away. And the, the issue is, are you loving and submitting to and following the leadership of the man God did give you? With our children, same deal. This, this applies in a broad range of areas. With our jobs, with our homes, with our circumstances in every respect. Paul says, lead the life God has assigned to you and to which God has called you. Your life, whatever it is, is a calling. Your talents, whatever they are, are things that are given you by God and He expects you to use them to glorify Him. That's the point. And now Paul's going to give us here a couple of examples of some circumstances and how the calling of God fits in with that. Look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? 
Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was, who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Now, here in this, this little section of our passage, we have two examples of two kinds of circumstances in which a person might find themselves. One would be a chosen status, and the other would not be under normal circumstances. The church at Corinth was a largely Gentile congregation, and there were some, there were some Jews in it, but most of the people would have been Gentiles. But in Paul's day, there was this influential group of people that Paul calls elsewhere the Judaizers. And they were going around telling people, all these Gentiles who were uncircumcised, that if you, it's fine to be a Gentile and it's fine to be a, a Gentile member of the Christian church, but if you want to be really spiritual, you need to go see the doctor Get a little flesh removed, and then you will be authentically spiritual as a Christian. And so in Paul's day, there was a lot of pressure for adult Gentiles to seek circumcision that they might in some way achieve a higher level of spirituality. And that might seem weird to us, but it was a huge source of conflict in the early church, Paul writes a lot about it in a lot of places. He wrote an entire book about it called Galatians. You ought to read it sometime. Um, and Paul addresses everywhere the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and how they are one in Christ. And since it's a big issue, Paul illustrates this point by saying, look, you ought to be content with the status that you had when you were called. In other words, if you were called as a Jew, a circumcised man, you were called as a Jew, that's great. Live your life in the calling God gave you as a Jew, that you might reach Jewish people as the apostles did, that you might do as the apostle Paul did and talk to your fellow Jews about how Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. If you're a Gentile, great. God is calling you as part of a as part of his effort to reach all nations across the world with the gospel. But you don't need to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You, there's no spiritually significant uh, aspect to having part of your flesh removed as a dude. There's nothing to that at this point. We're under the new covenant. And therefore, the old covenant and the signs of it are are passing away. But nevertheless, God's, God says here through Paul, he says, neither the, of these circumstances count for anything but keeping the commandments of God. In other words, if you're outwardly a Jew, but you disobey God, what good is that? If, on the other hand, you are a Gentile, but you obey God, that's the point. The point is, is that if you're in covenant with God through faith in Christ, you're to obey God. And what, what your body looks like on the outside or what set of genetics you have is irrelevant to your ability to obey God. 
it's not a situation that uh, you need to seek any exemption from or you need that you need to seek to change your status in you need to obey god in that circumstance now slavery is the other example now this is a situation which was not chosen but is inflicted on you uh, in fact slavery is one of the most oppressive and difficult situations that you could ever find yourself in as a human being and and it would be appropriate, I think, if you are a slave, to long for some kind of relief and release from slavery. Paul's response here is, is interesting. It's nuanced. He says, first of all, don't worry about it. That's verse 21. Don't be concerned about it. Now, he's not saying, he's not diminishing how difficult it is to be a slave because it's difficult. This person owns you. He, holds, he or she holds your life in their hands. But what he is saying is this, is that your faith gives you equal status before God with those who are free. And thus, you don't need to worry that though you are less in the eyes of the world, that you are less also in the eyes of God. God calls all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances. In, in fact, he's going to say to us that in God's eyes, you are already free in all the ways that matter. You are free from your sin. You are free from death. You are free from hell. And you are free to be the child of God. And so your physical circumstances matter, but they don't matter eternally. And that is huge. In Paul's day, there were a lot of ways to become a slave. Uh, the most common way was that you would be taken as a captive in war. Yeah, there was no Geneva Convention back then where, okay, we signed the treaty, now all you guys can go home. No, no. We took you captive when we laid siege to your city, and then we owned you in perpetuity thereafter. The other way that people became slaves was that they were... Um, there was no bankruptcy law. And so if you got to where you could not pay your debts, then you, your spouse, your children, would all be sold into slavery to whoever you owed the money. Now that would obviously make you very careful about going down to see the bank. But if you couldn't pay your debts, you became a slave. And you became a slave until the debt was satisfied. And sometimes permanently even after that. And the church in the early days was composed of a lot of people who were slaves. Which is not surprising when you consider that what the gospel offers is a message that sets people free from captivity. From the eternal perspective. But also when you consider that up to 60% of the entire population of the Roman Empire would have been slaves. In the day that Paul was writing. The vast majority of people were not free. And, and huge numbers of them came into the church. Because the gospel was the message that you, though you, 
your circumstances might be bad in this life, that Christ offered redemption and freedom from sin and death and hell now and and in eternity as well. And that you had equal status before God with the wealthiest, most powerful, free person in the world. And, And hundreds and thousands of people came to faith in Christ as part of the Roman Empire. And of course, as Christianity became dominant in the Roman Empire, slavery was eliminated as something which was contrary to the gospel. And then in verse 21, he says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, there are some circumstances in which you ought to seek a change. Slavery is one. But if you can't, and sometimes you could buy yourself out of slavery. Sometimes slaves were paid for some of the work that they did, at least in those days, and you could accumulate over time enough money to get yourself out. And Paul recommends that if you can. But if you can't, then realize that the Lord knows where you are. And serve him by serving your master as best you can in the circumstances that you're in. So if you can gain your freedom, that's great because you can serve the Lord even more. But if you can't, then the general principle still holds that you're not to waste your life wishing for other circumstances, but serve the Lord where you are right then. And then in addition, he says in verse 23, Because you were bought with a price by Jesus. In other words, because Jesus Christ died on the cross, paying an extreme price for your redemption, don't allow yourself to become a slave if you can at all avoid it. Because it's an undesirable situation. Put it as mildly as possible. Now verse 24, let's move on. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And Paul basically wraps both ends of this passage in in a restatement of the same principle. That whatever circumstances you're in, stay in it. Now, there are some circumstances, slavery, in which you should seek to be released, seek a change in what you're doing. But in most circumstances, by far the majority of circumstances... Stay in the circumstances in which God called you and live out your calling to God faithfully in them. Don't seek to be delivered from them, but be faithful in them. However God called you, that's how you should stay. If you're married, to go back earlier in chapter 7, stay married. If you're married to an unbeliever and they are willing to stay married to you, stay married to them, that the gospel might be advanced through your living testimony in that home. That's earlier. If you're a Jew, retain the marks of your Jewish identity. If you're, not a, if you're a Gentile, don't think it's more spiritual to be a Jew. If you're a slave and you can get free, do it. But if not, serve the Lord as a slave, recognizing that Christ's death has set you free for eternity, and this is just a small doorway between here and there. And that is the point of this whole section. You want to look at all of it. In fact, Paul will pivot to another set of circumstances next week. It's something that Paul 
repeats and restates multiple times. So, so let me ask you, why is this hard to obey? I think it's hard because we get to comparing ourselves with one another. And then as surely as night follows day, that comparison that we start doing kills our contentment with the circumstances God has put us in and steals from us the joy that Jesus intends for us to have. So how do we get out of the comparison and discontentment trap? I think there's three steps. Number one, they all start with R. Number one, recognize what our discontentment says about what we think of God. Recognize what our discontentment says about what we think of God. And to repeat that, what it says about what we think of God is that, A, God doesn't know what he's doing. And it also says that that God is withholding from me something good that I should have. So God is not good, and he is not omniscient. And he does not know what he is doing. That's a terrible thing to think, because it runs contrary to everything the Scripture says about who God is. That he is good, that he loves you, that he sovereignly apportions to each person that which he wants them to have. So you need to recognize, first of all, what your discontentment, if you are discontented, says about God in your heart. And then number two, after you recognize, then repent of envy and your lack of trust. You know, envy is not a sin that you hear a lot of sermons given on in America. Somehow this has become a culturally acceptable sin for people to engage in, to envy one another. Uh, We look around and we compare and we think that we have to have what everybody else has gotten. And we think that we know so much better than God what we really need and more than that what we deserve. And it's envy to think that way. It's faithlessness. It's refusing to trust God that he knows our needs, that he is good in every way, that he loves us, that he has apportioned to us what he in love has decided to give us, and then to trust him supremely, even if he doesn't give us what we think would be best for us. And if you look at your heart and you find sin there with this right here, the solution is to repent. It's to turn from that, is to confess, that is to admit that what you're doing and what it is, which is sin, and then to turn away from it. And one of the best ways to truly turn away from sin is to replace it with something else. Now, if you're trying to if you're trying to lose weight as I am, uh, it does not do well just to sell, say to somebody, "Well, you know, uh, move more and eat fewer Twinkies." <laughs> right? 
you've got to replace what they were eating with something else, right? So instead of Twinkies, try oranges. Try apples, you know? Uh, instead of... Um, Instead of sitting on the couch and watching the latest episode of Burn Notice, take a walk outside. Uh, do something different what you're doing. You've got to figure out a different way to change the intake and the output of your life. Life changes as you change your heart and your habits. Right? Yet repentance means not just confession, but also change. And and becoming actually godly. And that leads to step three, which is this. Reignite your passion to serve Christ with your talents and gifts in your situation. When you're focused on yourself, by the way, it can, you can focus on yourself in, in such a way that you quickly turn inward and you give yourself, in, you give yourself over to self-pity and a discontentment and to comparison and to moaning and whining <laughs> and saying, well, if only God would do this for me. Well, if only I had this. Well, if only this were better. Well, if only I had a different husband, a different wife, a different child, a different job, a different life in general, then I would be really happy. I just need to get, get down on vacation and get away from it all. And the problem with that is that we always take ourselves along on the trip. You may leave the job at home, but you are still there at the beach. And we turn inward and we focus on ourselves instead of focusing on Jesus and focusing on serving others with the gifts that God gave us. And so part of repentance, I think, involves reigniting your passion to serve God and others with the talents and in the circumstances that God has given you. And most of us have life pretty good, really. I mean, really, is anybody out here suffering in life because they don't have a Maserati? Really? All of us have a warm, dry place to stay. We're all in better health than people our age, most places in the world. Our dogs and cats in the United States of America eat better than about half of the planet. We have nothing to complain about. And God loves us and he has blessed us abundantly, even the least of us, abundantly far beyond most people in the world. And so we dare not complain and be envious. Instead, we need to give all of our energy to serving God with the talents he gave us. If that's two talents, if that's one if that's five, whatever it is. You're to live your life in a sense as if it's a sprint because it really is. People talk about, well, life is a marathon. Well, no, it's not. It might seem like that 
to a degree as you're going forward. But looking back, it goes by quick. The days are long, but the years are short. And all of a sudden, you turn around and you're looking down the barrel of 40, like me, or looking down the barrel of 80, like some of you, or 30, or 50, or 20, or whatever it is. Life goes by quick, and you only have a short time to serve the Lord. Well, let's give him all we have. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would never be so prideful to look at you and say, why did you make me like this and what have you done? Father, we pray that instead we would have the attitude of, I have been made like this to serve the Lord in a way that only I can in the place and in the circumstances that only I could be in because you have sovereignly and lovingly put me there for this time in this place, in these circumstances, that I might glorify you in a a unique way there. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified in everything that we do. That we would use all of our talents, all of our energy, all of our life, and all of our circumstances to bring honor and glory and praise to the only one who is worthy, to you. We pray in Jesus' name.